Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, We've been in... uh... The book of Nehemiah, we're in a series on the book of Nehemiah, which has been an amazing time. We've spent the last seven weeks systematically working our way through the book of Nehemiah, chapter by chapter. Then we paused on chapter six for two messages and uh, Christmas has crept up on us. And next week is the 18th, as Laura was saying. And so next week, the 18th, we don't have a 9.30 a.m. gathering. Who can tell me what time our gathering is next week? 4 p.m., So it's not a morning gathering. If you come here, heck, worship the Lord with gladness. And who knows, there might be a whole bunch of people who accidentally rock up as well and that'll be awesome. Have a singer song and praise God, but I won't be preaching. At four o'clock, we have our Bethlehem, uh, Road to Bethlehem, which is just an amazing opportunity to celebrate the Christmas story in a super family-friendly environment. So please take those flyers, send them out, put them in the hands of someone you've been praying for. Christmas is an incredible time to proclaim the gospel. It's such a privilege. People's hearts are soft and their eyes are open. So let's do that. Let's put that little invitation that you have on your chair in the hands of someone. Come along and let's, uh, let's celebrate the great gift of life we have in Christ Jesus, amen? Uh, but we've been in, so we've been in Nehemiah and um, today our last sermon on this series and we're, rather than just diving in real deep into one chapter, what we're gonna do is we're gonna get, un, get in the helicopter, so to speak, and we're gonna get a bit of a bird's eye view of chapters seven through 12 in a message that I am simply titling Signs of Revival. You know, when we started this series, we gave a, a, a series overview and we called it From Ruins to Revival. And we've, we've followed along with Nehemiah and the people of Judah and we've been looking at a wall. And it seems like a wall is just like a whole bunch of stones and sort of a little bit of relevant to our modern context. But what we've seen is just how relevant it is. That the wall is so much more than a physical heap of stones piled on top of one another, but a wall is a kingdom type. It, is, it, it prophetically speaks to the nature and the reality of the kingdom of God. That this wall is this place, this, this thing that brings about peace, genuine peace, not peace and quiet that so many of us sit, search for and long for, especially this time of year when the children are no longer at school. But we're talking about shalom, kingdom, peace. The rule and reign of God manifest in and amongst the people of God. And when we're examining the world, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at the shalom of God, that the peace of God has come. And so we've, we've gone through the journey of Nehemiah being called and, and praying and then having that prophetic purpose that God has given him and the favour that he got to receive all the resource that he needed. We've seen the people rally to a cause. We've seen that cause suffer persecution and trial as people have come against it. And then ultimately, last week, Jeremy Jakes, Pastor Jeremy came and preached a great word. And what we saw was that the wall got built in 52 days. 
That, friends, is a miracle. That's the point of that passage. 12 metres high, four kilometres long, up to eight metres wide, 52 days. It took the South Australian government. (laughs) You're laughing before I've even said anything. Because you all know. Let's talk about South Road. I think I was five when that started. Amen? Like 52 days, the message is that it's a miracle, that the kingdom is a miracle work of God in and through the hands and the feet of the people of God, that it has to be God, that God is the one who does the work. If it's up to us, it will fall and fail and become a South Road motorway project. But when God breathes on it, when it's God's intention and God's heart, He will build His kingdom. He spoke in the New Testament. He said to Peter, you are on this rock. You know, I tell you, Peter, you are, from now on, you will, Simon, you will be called Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will build His kingdom. And what we see is that through 52 days of glory and greatness and all sorts of difficulty and trial and storms of life coming against Nehemiah, God built His church. And it's a metaphor for the fact that God will build His kingdom right here, right now in the Adelaide Hills, in your life, in your family, even when life is tough, even when trials come and the storms of life come and blow, God will build His kingdom as we wait upon Him. And so what we see as we turn the page from chapter six and we go to chapter seven all the way through to chapter 13 in the book of Nehemiah is this kind of beautiful picture of, okay, the wall's built, now what? Like if it's ruins to revival, the wall is finished halfway through. What happens next? What are the signs of revival? How do we know God is on it? and in it. How do we know God is moving? Come to chapter seven with me. Open the Bible. Yes, it's up there, but let's be a people who bring our own word. Chapter seven, Nehemiah, I'm gonna read from the ESV, which has already stitched up Luke, because I reckon he probably put it in the NIV, but that's okay. From verse, I'm just gonna read from verse one and we'll read for till verse five. Now, when the wall had been built and I set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, that's a creative parent. <laughs> the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard, uh, some at their guard posts and some in front of their houses. Verse four, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy 
And I found the book of the genealogy of those who had come back from exile. And then it goes on and it starts to name, name after name after name after name. Isn't it really interesting? The wall's been built. The temple's been kind of rebuilt, not to its former glory, but it's been reestablished. But there's no one in the city. Here's the first thing. And it seems simple and you might be like, duh. But I think sometimes we lose sight of this and we just need to be gently reminded that the kingdom of God is actually about people. What point is a city with no people? How many of you followed along Jimmy Rees in COVID when he did his point of view videos about all the different things, all the different cities? Hands up if you followed along, tracked with Jimmy Giggle. That's how I remember him, Jimmy Giggle from ABC Kids. Anyway, he did these really funny videos where he basically just looked at all the different major cities and pretended he was a shop assistant going scanning items that define and link to that city, the nature of that city. What I found fascinating is when he went through all those cities, pretty well everything he spoke about, it wasn't just about the landmarks, it was about the traits and characters of the people as they related to particular landmarks. Here's the thing, a city is defined by the people who live in it, not just the landmarks within it. What good is a wall without people? What good is it saying, look how grand this wall is that God has built if no one is being blessed by it? And if no one is being invited into it and if no one is experiencing the shalom of God, the peace of God and the power of God at work in their lives. And really simple, this is the first thing you're gonna see from the helicopter view of the last few chapters of Nehemiah is a reminder that the work of the wall is about people, not the actual building. And in the church, we must remember that the call of God is like is His church. The church is not a service. The church is not an old building with a steeple. The church is not a new building with screens and lights. The church is the ecclesia. Everyone say ecclesia, which means people or gathering of people. And so Nehemiah looks around, he's like, well, the city's great. There's still no houses built. There's still a whole lot of work to do, but there's a wall. So there's the hope of shalom. And because there's hope, oh, I feel like preaching. Because there's hope, it's time to invite people into that hope. Friends, as we approach a Christmas season, as we come to the end of Nehemiah and as we move forward into next year and all that God wants to do in and through this community, may we be a people who are grounded in the hope we have in Christ and who have that hope which actually passes all understanding but is firm and secure like an anchor. I've been on my heart all week, that Hebrews passage, the hope we have, the anchor behind the curtain, which is Christ Jesus, that we would know that hope and that hope would be so strong in us that we cannot help but move upon it. You see, if, if Jesus for us is just an ancient figure, if Jesus for us is just a religious person who happened to live, if he's just a good guy or a prophet, it doesn't do anything in us. But when we look at the wall, Jesus Christ, when we look at 
the kingdom of God and all that He has come to do. And we realise that there is hope for eternal shalom, not just for me, but for all who would come in. It does something in us. And we begin to invite others into it. We're having a chat this morning during setup. A great question and not a con- condemning question, but just an interesting question for us to consider. When was the last time we had a conversation with someone about the good news of Jesus Christ? When was the last time when we had a conversation with someone who doesn't know the Lord and we simply just said, hey, where are you at with faith? Talk to me about hope. Talk to me about purpose. Talk to me about the Messiah. Have you heard about the good news? I don't know how you wanna frame it, but when was the last time we invited someone into the city? And do you know what I love about this? If we, if we jump ahead and we go to chapter 11, there's this fascinating little moment. Are you guys good if we just keep teaching on this for one second? Chapter 11, verse one and two. Listen to this. After some stuff happens, which we'll jump back to. Now, the, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem. So the people were inhabiting all the towns around. The city wall is built The houses are still in ruins. Nehemiah's like, we need some people for this city, otherwise it's pointless. They all gather, they read the word, which we'll come back to. They renew a covenant, which we'll come back to. And then they're like, right, who's gonna commit? Who's gonna come along? And so it says that they draw lots. Nine out of 10 remained in the other towns and one out of 10 chose to live in Jerusalem or chosen to live in Jerusalem. Verse two, And the people blessed all the people who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, if you just listen there and in your mind, you're still thinking about lunch, you miss something. Dive in with me. It said they were chosen by lot. So that's like old school draw straws, one short one, nine long ones, right? So they were chosen by lot and yet the people celebrated those who willingly chose, willingly volunteered, willingly offered to live in the city. Does that not seem like a contradiction? So they were chosen by Lot and yet they willingly chose and they celebrated the decision. Interesting, hey? Sounds a little bit like the battle between free will and predestination. Who wants to go there this morning? You know, it's really interesting. We get so caught up in this whole, well, especially for people who've been around church circles for a while and love to read their theology, the whole idea of election or predestination or, you know, does God just only call a few or is there free will? Do I get to choose? Do I get to receive and accept? The picture of Nehemiah and I think the picture of the Bible, and I'm a bit Lutheran in this way, is both that God is sovereign, that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God, that no one can confess Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, that it's God who moves. That's what the old school lot thing was, like the old school drawing straws. In a new covenant theology, it's the Holy Spirit who goes about and moves upon people. 
And so the Holy Spirit is that picture. He's moving and he's, he's drawing and he's calling and he's choosing people. He's saying, come, come, here's Jesus. But at the same time, there's this place where we gladly accept, where we can choose to forsake or we can choose to step in. That is God's intention that all people would be saved, the Scripture says, that the Spirit is choosing, He's going out, all people, would you come? And yet we can say no, or we can say yes, Lord. We can receive it with soft hearts or we can reject it with hard hearts. Can I read Martin Luther to you? This is what Luther says. A dispute about predestination should be avoided entirely. Why? I forget everything about Christ when I come upon these thoughts and actually get to the point of imagining that God is a rogue. We must stay in the Word in which God is revealed to us and salvation is offered if we believe in Him. But in thinking about predestination, we forget God. However, in Christ are hidden all the treasures. Outside him, all are locked up. Therefore, we should simply refuse to argue about election. Isn't that interesting? Basically, what he's saying is keep your eyes on Jesus and he'll take care of the mystery. It's a mystery, but that's part of why he's God, because he's bigger than us and he's above us. And he is at work in the world because his heart is for people, because the kingdom is is about people. Creation is about God's intention to dwell with. You'll be better at this church. (laughs) Creation is about God's intention to dwell with. It's about people. It's about people. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. Let's keep going. Second thing I want you to see. Signs of revival. One, our heart is for people. We know God is moving in the church when the church is looking outward and when it's looking to care inward. When our hearts are selfish and our desires are for just what can I get, the Spirit of God is grieved. But when the church is on fire, Oh, I long to see the church on fire. Our heart is looking around. Who can I love and how can I love them? And who needs to know the hope of the gospel and come into this great and glorious city that is the kingdom of God? The second thing, the second sign of revival is purity. Purity. Everyone say Purity. So after all the names in chapter seven, after all the people, chapter eight, Ezra gets up and all those people stand in Jerusalem. They've been invited in and literally they read the Bible for hours upon hours upon hours. And not only do they read the Bible, there's a bunch of people there who start explaining what's being read to all the people who have no idea what they're talking about because these people have been living in captivity for a very long time. And so they actually need to be re-educated, re-taught the Word of God. And so what happens is the Word gets read, the Word gets preached, the Word gets explained, and the people are like, 
wow. Like they have this powerful revelation of who God is, right? A revelation they hadn't had for 140 years and all of a sudden their eyes are open. They, they realise who God is and they realise His holiness and they realise His glory and they realise His majesty and they realise how far they've fallen from the great call that He has given them and the great desire He has to love them and walk with them and raise them up. And they're like, what have we done? And they begin to weep and they begin to mourn. They fall on their faces, the Scripture says in Nehemiah 8. And then what happens is they get reminded that this is a day not to mourn, but to rejoice. And as you keep going, so there's this incredible outpouring of repentance and this incredible outpouring of of emotion as they encounter the living God, almost as if for the first time again. And then in chapter nine, they make a covenant with God. They confess their sin and they covenant to, to follow God and obey God and walk in His ways. And then chapter 10, that carries on. Then in chapter 11, as they keep going, as they keep walking, they start to fill the city and they start to choose who are going there now in this, this, beautiful, uh, this beautiful desire to follow God. And then chapter 12, verse 30, it says something interesting. It says, and the priests and the Levites, so the leaders purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So the people come, but in order to get in there, they have to be purified. There's repentance, there's covenant renewal, and then there's purification. What is purification? Is this just me? Got a little bit dirty working out in the farm, so I better jump down to the bath and give it a little wash, get rid of the germs. Because coughs and sneezes spread diseases, so I want to make sure that I'm clean. What's this all about? It's actually something so much deeper than soap on the hands before dinner. It's actually speaking to the spiritual condition of humanity, and it's speaking to the fact that we all have a diseased spirit, right? and that we all need to be washed. Again, that we've all fallen short. This is what baptism is about. It's about a washing. It's about a washing away of sin and a rising to life in Christ. But we don't do it anymore through this ritualistic thing that happens in Nehemiah. We have been washed in Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Watch this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, the city. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Not are, were but you were washed, you were sanctified, which means to be made right. You were justified, you were made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. When you read through that list, that's just a small list of wrongs. It bodes an interesting question, doesn't it? How many of us have ever had a wrong thought? How many of us have ever 
sought, you know, just a bit selfishly to gain something for ourselves, even if it costs someone else something. How many of us have ever walked down uh, an immoral line? How many of us have ever elevated something above God? That's idolatry. In this place, how many of you, let's just have a moment of vulnerability, I'm here. How many of you have ever done that? You've all put your hand down awfully quickly. Everybody. But if you're in Christ, if you believe in Him, you were washed. You were washed, you were made pure. You were set right, justified, set right with God. You enter the kingdom, you go through the wall, you enter the city, the holy city to have union and communion and relationship with God through the washing of the blood of Jesus. He paid the price for us that we could be made pure in the sight of God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And he lists a whole heap of things that we would perceive to be able to maybe take us away. And he's like, no, no, none of these things. You're more than conquerors in Him because He washed you. But you can't go in unless you are washed because innately we are stained by sin, which leads to death. Nehemiah and all the Old Testament is prophetically declaring the means to enter the kingdom. When I read that, I had a moment. You guys are like, yeah, I already knew that. That's what Nehemiah is declaring. That we need to be washed, purified, made right by the living God. There's so many scriptures. But in John 13, it says, if we're not washed, we have no part in Christ. Peter's sitting with the Lord and the Lord's trying to wash his feet. Peter's like, you'll never wash me. And Jesus is like, well, if I don't wash you, you got no part of me. And Peter's like, well, then wash everything. (laughs) I love Peter. And Jesus is there like, no, no, no. Just let me do it my way. That's the point. We constantly try and get into the city our way. Isn't it? And he goes, no, just let me do it my way. All I want you to do is surrender. And receive the washing. Come in. And what happens as they enter? Well, there's a, we could have called this all sorts of things, but there is a party of praise Verse 43 of chapter 12. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. That's an inference to joy three times in half a sentence. The women and children also rejoiced, there's four. And the joy, there's five, of Jerusalem was heard far away. Another translation says, the sound of Jerusalem was heard amongst the nations. Rejoice, 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 joy, 
joy, joy, party. In such a way that the sound or the joy of Jerusalem was heard amongst the nations. You see, church, just give me five minutes. Just look at me. Band, you can come up and we will close. When we understand, when we understand that God cares about me and that He cares about, that God is for people of which I am a person and He cares about my friends and He cares about my family. He cares about people who are gonna come generations from now who I have never met and never will meet. God's heart is for people. And when we understand that the living God took on flesh died on a cross because He loves humanity that we might be washed set free and not just not just cleansed of sin but given an inheritance not just like yeah you're now at zero you know we're in debt that whole idea we're in debt now we're zero no no it's not debt zero it's debt Eternity, infinite value, worth, immeasurable joy, everything we need for life and godliness, that we have been given the fullness of the kingdom. When we understand that, when we see that, then just like the people in Nehemiah who start weeping, because they've had the same revelation that Isaiah had when he saw the Lord seated high and he said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. It's the same response. There's always this weeping and this repentance and this, oh my gosh, I don't deserve to be here. John, in the book of Revelation, he falls as though he's dead. Like, it's like, oh, wow. And then when we realise that the God who is a consuming fire, who created all things, heaven and earth, chose to suffer and die that that I might not only be saved, but elevated to sit with Him. There's one response that's appropriate. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? Praise, rejoicing, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And friends, can I be real honest here? It's not a conservative praise. The Bible doesn't say make a boring noise unto the Lord. The Bible says make a a joyful noise unto the Lord. It says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It says the sound of the Jerusalem was heard amongst the nations. That's not a gentle sound. That's a that's a vibrant, passionate thanksgiving and praise for all that God has done. This is what happens to the people when they catch sight of the holiness of God. Read chapter nine. It literally just retells the whole story of Jerusalem and the people of God. Read it. It's one chapter. It'll take you five minutes. I guarantee you can complete it today. Read it catch the heart of it. And then they say, therefore, and they make the covenant and then they rejoice. Then they rejoice. Would we be a church that is so enamoured with Christ, at Christ crucified, at Christ resurrected, at Christ glorified, that we cannot help but be like, ah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. 
The Scripture's full of it. David, all through the Psalms, he's like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, constantly praising God. That is the only response that we can have, church, to the goodness and greatness of God. Now, 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 one more thing though, watch this. The houses still aren't built. Coming over here, because they didn't give me anything. The houses still aren't built. The city is still in ruins. The wall's up, but they're praising God in the hope of their future. Some of you are going through some stuff. Some of you look around and the houses are lying in rubble and all you have to hold on to is a future hope. Is He not still worthy of praise? Come on, somebody. Is He not still worthy of praise? And if you answer that question, you say, I don't know. Do me a favour, talk to one of the oldest saints in this place who have been through some stuff and are still going through some stuff and still know how to give God a shout of praise. You know, the book, the book of Habakkuk, we love to go to Habakkuk, don't we church? It says this, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy, why? In the God of my salvation. Because salvation is everything. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and He makes me tread on high places. Church, I don't know where you're at, but I know He's worthy of praise. I don't know if your house is looking glorious, your you know, metaphorical, spiritual, life-conditioned house is in really good nick, or if it's crumbling all around you. If it's in good nick, give Him praise. Sometimes when it's in really good nick, we forget to praise because we have this idea that, well, I don't need to praise because my life is good. All the more reason to remind yourself that you are nothing and He is everything. And the way we do that is with a shout of praise that shakes the nations. If, if your house is crumbling, if life is difficult and life is tough and you feel like you got nothing, come back to your salvation, come back to the cross, come back to the washing of the waters of baptism, come back to all that He has done for us and let out a mighty shout of praise because it's in that praise that the enemy's gates begin to tremble. Praise is a weapon that God has given us. So we are going to do that right now. And as we head into Christmas, we're gonna continue to do that. And as we start the new year, church, this is what God's laid on my heart. At the first week of February, we're gonna do 72 hours of Bible reading as a church. 72 hours consecutively. You're all gonna have an opportunity to sign up to a half hour spot because you can complete Genesis to Revelation in 72 hours. We will read it from cover to cover as a church. Yes? Exciting, just like Nehemiah chapter eight. Woo, can't wait, it's gonna be amazing. From there, we're gonna launch into 40 days of prayer and fasting as a church. And we're gonna get our hearts right and we're gonna believe that God is gonna do immeasurably more than we hope or imagine in 2023 and beyond. We're gonna humble ourselves and we're gonna lift up a shout of praise. And I'm believing 2023, get ready for the word for the year, is that He is gonna set our hearts ablaze. 
hearts ablaze, filled with the fire and the passion of God as we become a church that fills the valley and the hills with praise so loud that it's heard amongst the nations. Are you with me, church? Are you with me? Let's stand to our feet and let's begin to declare that He is worthy of praise. And let's begin to fill our hearts with joy no matter the season. Come on. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.